millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Hello and welcome to a BFI podcast mini-sode. This time, head turned by Hollywood, we're throwing the usual format to the wind and presenting a straight-up interview with two glitzy A-listers, James and Dave Franco. James is the actor-slash-author-slash-lecturer-slash-soapstar-slash-installation-artist-slash-painter-slash-producer-slash-columnist and star of good stuff like Freaks and Geeks, 127 Hours and Spring Breakers, and bad stuff like Spider-Man 3, Eat, Pray, Love, and Spring Breakers. Dave is an actor. The pair dropped into the BFI South Bank last week to talk about the disaster artist. James's biopic about the making of a film many have called the worst movie ever made, The Room. I used to know a girl. She had a dozen guys. One of them found out about it, beat her up so bad she ended up in a hospital on Guerrero Street. <laughs> what a story, Mark. Yeah, you can say that again. <sighs> Where to start with The Room? Released in 2003, it was a self-funded passion project of writer-director Tommy Wiseau. His debut film, The Room, roughly tells the story of Johnny, played by Wiseau, a successful banker whose future wife, Lisa, is cheating on him with his best friend, Mark. Mark is played by Greg Sestero, Tommy's friend, and the co-author of the book, The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Film Ever Made, on which Franco's film is based. Self-distributed by Wiseau and a bomb on its initial release, The Room has amassed a cult following since. It sells out midnight screenings to fans who've repurposed Wiseau's utterly odd and very bad melodrama as an ironic comedy. Wiseau, a terrible filmmaker but a great showman, has gone along with it, appearing at the screenings to play up the myth that this was what he intended all along. People find The Room hilarious, but honestly I just find it strange. It's not just poorly made, it doesn't make any sense. It's been described as a film that feels like it was made by aliens. Every part of it, the script, the acting, the editing, is off. Anyway, James Franco loves it, and he's made a surprisingly tender tribute to The Room in the form of The Disaster Artist. Here's Franco and his brother talking about how to make good art out of bad. By the way, they don't identify themselves, but Dave is the shouty one, James is the really shouty one. If we think about the history of films, there are thousands upon thousands of bad movies that we will just never watch again. And then there are this, there's this small circle of bad films that have become cult hits for whatever reason. And then I think within that circle, there's the room. And the thing that I think sets the room apart is the passion with which Tommy Wiseau 
originally, you know, made it. That he did not intend it to be, you know, um, farcical in any way. That this was a very earnest, sincere expression of his own um, trials in life, uh, his uh, feelings about how he had been betrayed by the world. I think it was his attempt to show people, you know, who he was. Um, And then in addition to that, he just had a very skewed perspective of who he was. How old are you? Oh, wow, Greg age. You're 19? Yeah. I just turned 14. Wow, happy birthday. The three mysteries of Tommy are, you know, how old he is. He was at least in his late 40s when he made The Room, and he claimed he was in his 20s. Um, he sound like this, which would suggest he maybe is from Eastern Europe, but he claimed he's from New Orleans, and he's an all-American guy. Uh, he And where he got the money, because he self-financed The Room at the tune of $6 million. And, um, and so he just seemed to have such a lack of perspective on himself, but he swung so big. He did not make the movie that he intended, which, you know, the poster said it all. On the original poster, he said, you know, he wrote the copy. It said, uh, a Tennessee Williams-level drama, you know. And, you know, so he intended to make Streetcar Named Desire, uh, and then he realized that everybody was laughing at it. And so he did this weird flip and did some strange mental gymnastics so that he then took credit for it being a comedy, but can still, he can still at the same time believe he's greatest director around. And so he just added to the poster. He didn't take off Tennessee Williams level drama from the poster. He just added something like entertaining black comedy. And so now he says about the room, you know, the room is safe place. You can laugh. You can cry, do whatever you like, express yourself, just don't hurt yourself, right? And so now he's just, you know, expanded into an even stranger character that can encompass, you know, this belief that he's, you know, a a director on the level of, you know, Elia Kazan, but also intended to make a comedy. So how you explain that, I don't know. That kind of deafness, though, means that he's something of a, a great Hollywood player, right? Like, if he's managed to turn his flaws into a strength. I mean, it's like he, <laughs> he made something that people are playing in theaters 15 years after the fact, and there's something to be said about that. And I know now he, he says that he made something that makes people feel something, and... That's, yeah, that is impressive in its own right. And I, I guess it's just like something, something that we could really relate to um, is, is their struggle, is Tommy and Greg's struggle, where from the outside, they seem like these weird outsiders. But when you boil it down, like they, they were young actors trying to make it in this very difficult business. And we've, we've both been there. And I, I've been on sets where I, I thought everything was going great and people on set were talking about awards for the movie that we were working on and I bought into the hype and then it came out and it was awful. It was the worst thing I've ever worked on. And so it's, it's one of those things that you just, as an artist, you, you are on set and you're putting everything you have into something, but uh, you don't know which way it's going to go. And that causes you to have these moments where you think, 
is what I'm doing any good or is this a total mess? And you just kind of have to put your head down and, and do your best work and hope for the best. And we should add that on its initial run, Tommy, being the distributor as well, kept the movie in the theaters for two and a half weeks, even though nobody was coming. It, you know, it cost $6 million, made $1,800 its first run. He kept it in the theaters for two weeks to qualify for the Academy Awards. How did it do? It Maybe. did not get nominated. <laughs> we do alley scene. This set of the alleyway looks exactly like the real alleyway out there. That's right. That's why we're doing Hollywood movie, right? Well, why don't we just shoot in the real alleyway? Because it's real Hollywood movie. No? Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. James, I wondered if there's something about this story that could be the James Franco story as well, and that's why you relate to it so hard. So you're smiling for the for the listeners. Let's just say you're smiling when you say that. But but in fact, um, it is a very personal story to me. I I've been introducing. I, I we just um, did our our U.S. premiere at the Man's Chinese Theater in Los Angeles, which is sort of this iconic theater in the center of Hollywood on Hollywood Boulevard, and all the handprints and the Hollywood you know Walk of Fame stars are out in front and everything and. Um, and I introduced the movie by saying, you know, this in fact is a very personal story to me. And Tommy introduced The Room on the night of his premiere by saying, you know, this my movie, this my life, be cool. And that's how I feel because, um, like, like my brother was saying, you know, I could relate to the struggle. Anybody that comes to Hollywood has to do a first movie. You have to break in to a certain extent. And most people have to struggle, uh, as did I. I went, and then I realized, oh wow, even when we were location scouting, wow, I'm choosing all these locations that I used to frequent when I was up and coming, all these um, Ernie's Taco House and Baja Fresh, you know, and all these um, small acting schools in, in the San Fernando Valley. and. And it started, and I, and, and then in addition to that, I realized when I first read the book, I relate to Tommy. Like I, you know, you, you see a character and, and sometimes you just know, like maybe on the surface, he's very far from, from me, but underneath there's something I really understand. We had the same heroes. His hero was James Dean. I played James Dean. He quotes James Dean's film, Rebel Without a Cause, in his movie, The Room. You, you're towering me apart, Lisa. That's straight from Rebel Without a Cause. Um, and also the idea of hearing no, you know, like, look, I'm so grateful. I did have a career. I got to be on, you know, Freaks and Geeks at a pretty young age with Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen, people that I've been working with for years and years now. Um, I was very fortunate in that sense. But... There were other times when I had movies and subject matter that I wanted to put across that most people were like, I don't know, James, like, you're on your own with that one. Like, a, you know, a movie called Child of God that was an adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel about a murdering necrophiliac. Like, most people were like, James, uh, this maybe isn't going to get a big audience. And I was like, I know, I know, but I, I want to make this. I need to make this. And I, I think that was largely financed by me and you know very much in the in the vein of Tommy and and his movie and so I could really relate on a lot of levels to Tommy and the, just the idea of 
wanting to be creative. By playing Tommy, I realized some of how willful I could be in my own career and life. And to sort of step back and just be a collaborator. And, and, and so the movie taught me a lot of things just by who I was working with, my brother and Seth Rogen and friends, but also playing a guy that I related to in more ways than, than I had liked to admit or look at before. How much is the film a, a fuck you to critics and to the idea that something's critically good? <laughs> what do you mean exactly? I don't, I don't quite understand the question. <laughs> It feels like it crosses the line. The disaster artist, the film, makes a good film out of a bad one, but it, it, it kind of muddies the line about what a so-called good film is, <laughs> right? And a lot of film critics will tell you that The Room is a terrible film that has no artistic worth, but you guys have made something good out of it. I really don't think it's a fuck you at all. Yeah. Um, our, our approach was always one of love, and um, and so... There, there was very little sort of defiance in, in the DNA of, of this thing. And um, from the beginning, we knew the hook would be to make a very optimistic, hopeful, earnest film. You know, like my earlier films wouldn't, were never fuck yous, but they were in some ways defiant. Like, you know, you can't make a, you know, don't make a film about, you know, it's a Faulkner adaptation or whatever. Oh, yeah? Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Like, from th with this film, it was like, no. How do we bring people into this story? How do we make this story universal and relatable? And so that started with bringing on Seth Rogen and then um, going to the, the, the writers, um, Neustadter and Weber, who had done 500 Days of Summer and Fault in Our Stars because they were so good at relationships and stories and... And so our approach was always, how do we bring people in rather than how do we not, not how do we stick it to anybody? Yeah, Newsetter and Weber are maybe not the most obvious choice for a movie like this because I think most people would want to hire uh, big comedy writers and that's yeah. just not who they are. Like my brother said, they, they thrive on relationship stories and so that just kind of shows you where our head was at where we always knew the movie would have humor but we looked at movies like... Boogie Nights um, in terms of tones that we were going to try to mimic where in Boogie Nights it's a bunch of strange characters in bizarre scenarios but everyone is playing it as real as possible and letting the humor come from that as opposed to telling jokes and so that I think allows there to be a lot more heart without without shoving it down the audience's throat. It's like when you have a big uh, big comedy where it's joke, 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 it's hard to like seamlessly wedge in heart without making it feel out of left field. Hope your eardrums are still intact. The Disaster Artist, starring the Francos, Seth Rogen and Alison Brie, is released in the UK today. This episode of the BFI Podcast was presented and produced by me, Henry Barnes. You can find me on Twitter at Henry H. Barnes. Subscribe to the BFI Podcast via iTunes and check out our SoundCloud page. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.